welcome to Pep Talk, conversations on policy, economics, and politics. Today's episode is about educational policy in Texas public schools, colloquially known as K-12. Andrea Caraveo, a graduate student in the International Political Economy Program, recently conducted an interview with Lauren Ammons. Mrs. Ammons is the Director of Research and Evaluation at Dallas After School. She is involved with Leadership ISD, which aims to bring a positive change to public education in America. Mrs. Ammons has previously worked as a curriculum developer and is a third grade bilingual gifted and talented teacher for Garland ISD. She completed her master's degree in educational policy and management at Harvard University. During their conversation, they discussed the ramifications of recent state legislation on educational outcomes for Texas public school students, as well as the impact of school board elections on school districts. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Andrea Caraveo, and today we have Lauren Ammons with us. Thank you for being here, Lauren. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Last July, House Bill Number 3 was passed. This bill allocates more money for Texas classrooms, raises teacher compensation, lowers recapture, and reduces local property taxes for Texas taxpayers. What effects could it have on funding and student outcomes? I'm glad to get to talk about House Bill 3. Um, it has done a lot for public education, and I'm excited to see its implementation over the next couple of years. But HB3 certainly delivers some much-needed improvements to the funding of our state's public schools. As a result, it's created the potential for improvement in student outcomes in a lot of different ways. First and foremost, near and dear to my heart, early literacy. Um, there's a new early literacy allotment that will provide significant funding to resource full-day quality pre-K across the state for a number of young Texans. The money from that particular program is formula-funded and coming through additional weights for English learners as well as low-income students. Additionally, it will also require that each school district creates an early literacy plan, which will basically be a set of board established goals that have to be tracked and reviewed throughout the year for each student population in the district. So in addition to that, achievement for low-income students is high on the list and getting a lot of attention as it should. So HB3 also delivers sorely needed updates to better resources Texas's growing low-income population. This bill includes some equity improvements for students, including providing districts with a greater concentration of lower-income students, more funding for low-income students. So really, from an equity lens, really excited about that. It also has gone a long way to address recruiting and retaining high-quality teachers. We know that a child's teacher is the single largest factor contributing to student achievement. So by raising the minimum salary schedule, this will allow um, particular rural districts to begin to recruit more teachers. And then the optional effective educator allotment um, will allow districts to identify and pay those teachers that are most effective to attract them and keep them, hopefully, um, in the classroom. And then finally, just by generally eliminating outdated and inefficient funding components and raising the basic student allotments, so the amount of money that each district gets per child in their district, by almost $1,000, $890 on average, this surge of funds will just add a lot of significant resources to districts, providing them with the flexibility to drive resources where they're most needed. So excited about the potential for HB3 to really change student outcomes. Perfect. Thank you for that. Now, my next question is about another bill, 
This is about House Bill Number Five, which was passed in 2013. It altered the state's graduation requirements, moving from the four times four graduation plan to a 22 credit foundation high school program, which allowed students to earn endorsements in specific areas of study such as STEM, arts and humanities, business, and public service. Lauren, how has this affected the graduation rate? And what effect do you think this bill has had on students since 2013? Good question. Since most of my professional experience has been with younger students, not in the elementary ages, not on the high school end, I did a little digging and um, thinking about this question. And as I understand, the original intent of HB 5 in 2013 was to provide opportunities for students to earn certificates or endorse endorsements um, that would prepare them for employment right out of high school. However, as I understand, the adoption of the bill did not come without contention. Um, so, and much of that criticism was really centered around claims that HB 5 was simply a disguised tracking system that kept students in holds and lanes that would prevent them from being able to access college after graduation. But a study out of Texas A&M's um, Bush School for Government and Public Service actually found that a majority of districts were implementing this policy um, with the goal of following the intended desires of the legislature at the time, so providing students with the opportunity, again, to gain those career credentials while in high school. They did so, and they expressed satisfaction and understanding behind the legislative intent, but I think there was a lot of um, frustration that through the study they discovered on the lack of guidance on how best to implement this policy. So with that in mind, we can think about graduation rates. Texas graduation rates have been on the rise since 2010, 2011, um, growing three percentage points to now 89%. So one of the strongest ones um, in the nation. Um, but while it seems we're headed in the right direction, of course, I don't have any evidence that can necessarily say that this has definitively been a result of implementation of HB 5, but um, an intriguing idea. So. Okay, of course. Now, if, if schools are paid based on their performances, Will this broaden the existing gap between schools who are already performing well and schools who are lagging behind? And also, how will the students in both types of schools be affected? Yeah, so when I was thinking about this question, I assumed that this was directed at outcomes-based funding, which was a big hot topic this last legislative session. Lots of local uh, education groups were really excited about outcomes-based funding. But basically, put succinctly, outcomes-based funding or performance-based funding distributes funding to schools contingent on student performance. And that performance could be based on a variety of things, anything from coursework to high school graduation rates um, to how well a student performs on a standardized test. And the idea being that if a school or teachers and leaders are given sort of a particular incentive, that they'll focus on it um, to improve and focus on student outcomes accordingly. So, however, this suggests that schools already have the resources that they need to meet all the needs of the students that they have. So I think the increase in funding alongside of this is important to keep, kind of keep in mind. So I also did some digging on this, and um, Arizona has actually recently statewide implemented some outcomes-based funding programs. But from what I read, it seems like a lot of the schools that have been receiving the bulk of that funding are schools that typically serve fewer students in poverty, fewer students with disabilities, fewer English learners, and fewer students of color. So I think in order for this system to work, you have to ensure that growth is taken into consideration. I certainly believe that districts with large percentages of low-income students or English learners, students with disabilities, can achieve at high levels. But however, often these districts have further to climb um, in order to hit the benchmarks to access those funds. So in order to really capture the work of these educators and for it to be reflective, growth I think has to be a part of the conversation. 
But for me, as a former third grade teacher, I worry about placing large decisions on funding, um, on the performance of my students and my eight and nine year olds on a single day's test. I really think that um, the state school finance system should not be used as an accountability tool. I've heard it said this way, the finance system should guarantee each student an equitable opportunity for an education and the accountability system should be used to hold adults accountable. So I think it's great that we're interested in driving more funding to the students that need it most, but I'm not so sure how that might work while attaching to, to particular outcomes. So there's some back and forth and mixed ideas on that. So. Mm, yes, that's really interesting. Now, since we're talking about funding, schools are mainly financed by local property taxes and the state. Therefore, there are differences in schools from state to state. How do the inequities in elementary schools affect performances of students in high schools and state exams? Yeah, you're exactly right. There are huge differences in the rate at which education is funded across states. Even when adjusting for um, regional variations in cost, there are huge disparities. For example, in 2009-2010, New Jersey spent um, over $17,000 per student, while Utah only spent $6,400 per student. So then that disparity is caused by a number of things, including capacity, that being how well a state is, um, how well off a state is based on their economy and their resources, and as well as effort. Is the state interested and willing to provide funding for education? So with that said, um, we shouldn't overlook, though, the stark disparities among school districts within the same state. Um, because, uh, because education funding is derived, as you mentioned, from local property taxes, areas with higher property tax values are able to generate more revenue for their schools. Um, and of course, a lot of that, right, is then rooted in years of policies that enabled and supported residential racial economic segregation. So while the state's role is to help level off these disparities, even still, property-rich districts are able to generate the same amount of funding um, with a lower tax rate burden on property owners. So rectifying this gap in funding was actually the intention of recapture um, when it was first instituted, um, I think either in like the late 80s or early 90s. But it's gotten a pretty bad rap over the last couple of years for some of the other issues associated with it. But it was really quite radical in its intention to address issues of funding inequity. So while funding is not everything, I think it's essential in creating a system in which students can succeed. So often we see students' gaps and when they've not met basic benchmarks in elementary school, those gaps only widen and once they get to high school. So as you can imagine, if you've not mastered basic skills, it's really difficult to catch up, much less build new skills. I think this is why third grade literacy has become such a metric of focus for so many school districts and the legislature. So put most simply, students who experience gap in their achievement in elementary school will, will likely lead to the same in high school and on state exams. So funding is important, but definitely not everything. Of course, and you did mention something about testing. Mm -hmm. According to the Texas Education Agency's Academic Performance Report, only 35% of students statewide are college ready. How much of an impact do these inequities have on college readiness of Texas high school students where students say they are not prepared? So I think the state is definitely aware of this. There is actually a new um, higher education strategic plan called 60 by 30 Texas, um, and it aims for at least 60% of Texans age 25 to 34 to have a degree or certificate, I believe by uh, blinking on the, on the year off the top of my head, but I'm excited to see that there's a plan that's actually been codified to address these exact issues. The low percentage of students that are graduating from high school, college ready, makes 
this goal, however, really difficult to achieve. And so as your question suggests, the issue of college readiness is another question of equity. Um, students of color disproportionately receive an education that does not prepare them for the rigor of college. And as a result, it makes it difficult to persist um, and to graduate with a degree. And when students don't enter ready, they are placed into remedial coursework that doesn't count towards the completion of a degree and so on, right? This wastes costly time and resources that are limited, right, but by loans or whatever options are available. So instead, many students leave with college debt and no degree to show for it, resulting in a huge impact and a change in the trajectory, right, of their career or their life. However, I was encouraged in thinking about my own alma mater at UT Austin, recently just actually set a record for its four-year graduation rate, um, with the class of 2018 hitting almost 70%, which is great. Of course, this did not just happen out of nowhere. Um, there was lots of work being implemented to make this happen, including some student success initiatives um, to help more students leave school with a degree. And the university actually just recently um, announced, right, that they would be starting some programs to help students basically qualify for full tuition um, if their families meet the need. However, of course, it's not just on colleges. Our public schools need to be doing more to ensure that all kids graduate high school with the tools they need to be able to enter college and career. And so to the legislature's credit, right, HB3, um, again, has another goal that local school boards will be accountable for um, and progress in this area. So now all school boards will be required to set student outcome goals that include college and career readiness elements. And these plans are to target all student groups. So often we focus on what we measure, right? So I'm encouraged the districts um, will have to think about that um, more explicitly now. Now, when it comes about student outcome goals, the state of Texas uses the assessment of academic readiness STAR, which is a series of standardized tests used by Texas public primary and secondary schools to check a student's knowledge learned in grade level. What kind of effects could it have on post-secondary outcomes for students? So you're right, students take subject-based STAR exams in third through eighth grades, um, and then they take a series of end-of-course exams or EOCs during high school. And in the state's current accountability rating system, schools are rated in several different areas or indices, one of which is that post-secondary readiness element. This rating includes STAR test achievement in its calculations, which I think reflects a belief by the state that strong performance on these exams should lead to student success after high school. While I think this is a plausible assumption, I don't know that we have enough data yet to necessarily draw that kind of connection explicitly anyway. In the meantime, I would argue that post-secondary readiness um, should also include a component of soft skills needed to be successful for college and career. For example, students should know how to work collaboratively or how to communicate well. Um, and so I would love to see more of those types of skills also included as a part of this post-secondary readiness conversation. Yes, definitely. Now, we know that economic growth and quality of education usually go hand in hand. However, there is a disparity in Texas. What policies need to be implemented to address this situation? Sure, Texas has really recently right, benefited from a huge economic boom, um, which has brought an influx of new financial resources to the state's budget. Um, however, over the last several years, the state has been contributing less and less to public education, which has then resulted right in a burden or a greater burden on local taxpayers to cover that difference, um, while the state's been using that money in different in other areas. So I think again, I'm encouraged by HB3, which has provided a really great first step into rebalancing those financial con contributions of the state. 
However, contributing more money is not the only answer and will not solve the disparities that you mentioned. I think this is why additional funding weights that drive more dollars specifically to the students who need them most are an important part of this bill um, that we talked about a little bit earlier. And I think they're needed, desperately needed to rectify the disparities um, and achievement that we see across the state. So this also makes me think about how we get teachers to the students who need them most. Um, I'm intrigued, again, by that teacher incentive allotment and the intention to attract the highest quality teachers to the schools and districts where they need them the most. So I'm still learning more, but I'm glad all of these things are a part of the conversation. Of course. Now, overall, voter turnout in local elections is low unless it's a presidential election year. However, school board elections have a profound impact on school policies. What strategies exist in order to increase voter turnout in school board elections? Yes, you are exactly right. Voter turnout for local elections, any local elections, is truly abysmal. But there are a number of local organizations that are working to address this issue. For example, uh, Leadership ISD, which is an organization that holds a fellowship program in which I'm actually currently participating, is really working to aim to equip a diverse group of community leaders to initiate action in their communities, one of which right being voter turnout. Um, so in addition to this, the program aims to inform and activate the electorate. And this spring, teams of fellowship members will actually be going out and registering voters and block walking to inform neighbors of the importance of the role school board members hold. I'm also familiar with another program supported by Dallas Kids First called the Camp Fellowship that is also working to similar aims. So there are people right standing in the gap and trying to kind of change these rates of turnout. But I think the best way to continue to encourage more participation in these elections is by elevating the role of the school board trustee and really educating the public on the power they have to shift student outcomes in their district. So with all the new businesses flocking to DFW, I think that there's a really great opportunity to engage um, more of the business community in those conversations. And the more that this becomes, I think, a part of our regular conversation, I think the better chance we have of engaging more people in these elections. So. Also, um, I just was recently deputized to register voters in Dallas County, so if anyone needs to be registered, I can definitely help them out. That's amazing. Well, thank you for that. Now, let me ask you, in what ways do the results of school board elections affect policymaking for their respective school boards? Sure, right. So I think this is a great opportunity to start to elevate, again, the role of school board members or trustees. So in the same way that officials are elected to our legislature or other forms of government and they can sway or change policy development, school board trustees have the same potential to create positive experiences for the students in their districts. Their role really sits at the junction of policy and effective implementation for whatever the the targeted improvements are. So while trustees are tasked with adopting budgets and hiring and evaluating the superintendent, the most important part of their role is really to be focused on a primary objective, which is improving student outcomes. Um, And they do that by the setting of student outcome goals, which now the state has actually required a number of those, including some of the ones we talked about earlier, um, for every single district across the state. So um, they have a huge responsibility, but also a huge opportunity um, for creating change. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Recently, quite a few major corporations have moved their headquarters to the FW, as you mentioned before. Because of that, many families from California have relocated to Texas. What impact does this influx of students from other states have on classroom equity? Yeah, that's a good question. I hope, first and foremost, with an influx of new residents, right, that will continue to elevate the conversation about public education in Texas. 
Um, I'm not sure that I have had a chance to grapple too much um, with how this might impact equity um, across our schools, but I do think with a growing population, we need to be concerned about the shortage of high quality teachers for our students. I think the last time I looked, there's a number of districts in the area that still have quite a few vacancies, um, so we're in need of teachers. But according to the Texas Education Agency, enrollment in our Texas public schools has increased by over 14% just in the last 10 years, and our additions to the teaching workforce is not keeping pace. So I hope some of the improvements to the educator compensation that came out of HB3 um, and other money set aside again to incentivize high-quality teachers will help us move in the right direction. Perfect. So with that, we conclude our interview today. Thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. Pep Talk is executive produced by Jenny Viatoro and me, Victoria Morales. Our staff sponsor is Aaron Doherty. For this episode, our production manager, editor, and recording engineer was Victoria Morales. Our researchers were Ifteka Rul Islam, Les Daniland, Sona Begum Sheikh, and Victoria Morales. Our writer was Proma Paramita. Please subscribe to Pep Talk on your favorite streaming platform. We will be off for the next month due to finals and winter break. We look forward to bringing you more insightful conversations when we return in January. Thank you for listening.